and right now I'm going to pray for us as we get into this second part of this message, a prostitute, a murderer, and a coward, and today we're going to deal with the murderer. Father God, thank you for just the blessing that it is to be able to get back up here and teach and be able to stand and stand mostly pain-free. And I thank you that uh, for that. It is a gift and it is a blessing, and I'm thankful for that because many can't do that. So thank you for what you teach us, even in our infirmities, and, and we give you the thanks and the glory. And Lord, I just pray that tonight we will see ourselves in one of the most famous of all characters, people in the Bible, and that being David, through his whole life, and ultimately as king, and then as murderer, and is the only one in scripture ever referred to by yourself in your own words as a man after my own heart. Holy Spirit, come and help us to uh, lean in and listen and learn what you have for us tonight. For Christ's sake, amen. All right. David. What a great story. What a great man. What a great boy. And the whole story coming through, and I'm going to share a little bit of that with you, it's just amazing. And it's so amazing that it leads us to the question of how in the world did David go from where he was as a gentle shepherd boy writing psalms and the things that we'll take a look at in just a second to becoming a murderer? What happened? How in the world could that happen? Well, we're going to see. Because it is one of the most amazing stories in the Bible about one of the most amazing men in the Bible. And let's get started. If you have your Bibles, you can look at 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 is a chapter where we're introduced to David. Where actually begins, we're introduced to his father. Samuel, the prophet, comes looking for a replacement for King Saul. King Saul, was the, he was the first king over Israel. God didn't intend for Israel to have a king, didn't want it to be a monarchy. God intended to continue to be their God, their king, their Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and rule and guide and direct them. But after Moses went home, after um, Joshua and on through the judges, they kept demanding a king. We want a king. We want a king. Everybody else has got a king. And so be careful what you demand from God. Sometimes he let you have it, whether you need it or not. And in this case, he let him have King Saul. Started off well, but quickly got derailed, and Saul was a horrible king. God sent Samuel to David's father, Jesse. And I'm going to read a few verses in here in chapter 16 to give you some background there. And so Samuel goes and says, well, God sent me to anoint one of your sons to be the king, so bring him out here. And Jesse brought the sons out, and he went through the oldest from the oldest down because they assumed, well, surely he'll take the oldest. That's usually what happens, right? The oldest son gets the privileges and the blessings. But he keep going on through and going on through, and God says, nope, he's not the one. Nope, he's not the one. And he keeps going through, and he says, is there anyone left? In verse 11, says, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, and he is tending sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so they went and brought David in, and he was ruddy with beautiful eyes, a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for he's the one. This is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. That's the first use of his name. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and left. David was anointed king, and he may have been 12 years old. I'm not exactly sure, but he was a boy. He was a boy tending his father's sheep out in the pasture. Loved the Lord God, started writing psalms. We don't know which ones he wrote back in those days, but he just, he played music. He was an incredible young man. But the Spirit of the Lord God, the special anointing of the Holy Spirit was on him from that day forward. Now understand, and we talked about this when we talked about the Trinity, and most recently in my podcast series we've been doing about understanding God and the Trinity. Understand this, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came in special anointings in the Old Testament, and this was one of those. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes on all believers, all Christians, after the ascension of Christ, and Christ sends the Holy Spirit in the world. But in the Old Testament, we know he was present at creation. We see right in verse 2 in Genesis 1 that the Spirit hovered over the waters. And so throughout the Old Testament, there will be the appearances of the Holy Spirit bringing power and anointing. And also sometimes you'll see Theophanes or Jesus Christ himself appearing in a form as well. That's intermittent throughout the Old Testament, not like in the New Testament and not as we have today as Christians. So I hope that helps. But David anointed as a boy to be king. He didn't become king of Israel until he was 30 years old. David, we find him, as I just read you, First Samuel 16, humble shepherd boy, handpicked by God. And not only that, God made an interesting promise and, and again, a, a covenant with him that there would never not be someone from the line of David on the throne of Israel as long as there was a throne. Now, we know that came to an end um, after it was ultimately destroyed, but throughout Jewish history and all the ups and downs of, of Israel and Judah after they split, David always had a descendant on the throne of what became Judah, and ultimately Jesus came out of that lineage because Mary and Joseph were both of the line of David. And now Jesus is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That was his heritage from Judah on through. So we see all these things about David as a boy, this special anointing. If you keep reading just down through, just beyond where I did, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of that, he also became harpist to the king. King Saul had, he was demon-possessed, and he had issues going on in his mind and he would have all these things happen to him, and he would throw fits and tantrums and, and throw spears and do all these things. He could be a violent, violent man. And so they brought in David as a harpist to play the harp, because David was a talented musician in addition to being a shepherd. And he would play the harp, and it would soothe the mind of King Saul. And it's interesting because David was also anointed to take his place. And so throughout much of Saul's reign, and we read as we go on through First and Second Samuel, uh, Saul tried to kill him. Saul was always trying to kill David, and we know that David became uh, best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, one of the great friendships in the Bible. And Jonathan uh, helped protect David, his brother, if you will, from his father. Harpist, psalmist, David wrote 150 psalms, and David is given firm credit for having written around 73 of those. And there are probably others that he did write. Let's just say half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, the longest book in the Bible, David wrote. And they were different kinds of Psalms. They were prayers of praise. They were imprecatory Psalms of petition crying out. They were 
kill my enemy? Where have you gone? You just, when you study the Psalms, you study the relationship that David had with the Lord God. And it was unbelievable. It was intimate. It was an incredible relationship. You know, then as a, from a boy to kind of a young man in that age, and again, they're not sure about these ages, but David killed Goliath, right? The Israelites were scared to death. The Philistines were standing there taunting, taunting them and uh, waiting to do battle on either side of this valley where they kind of lined up to do war, go to war. And, and Goliath was out there taunting them and ridiculing them. And David couldn't stand it. You know, the story of David and Goliath and, and David couldn't wear the king's armor, didn't want to. And he went out there and with a sling and five stones and it only took one. He ended up killing Goliath. He knocked him down with that stone and went over, took his own sword and cut his head off. And he became a hero. And people began to really see that David is special. Something's going on here. And Saul got more and more jealous. So he's a warrior. And then ultimately, David is anointed king. First, he's anointed king over Judah, his people, his tribe, that area. And then ultimately over the whole nation of Israel. Because it had not split at that time. The nation of Israel doesn't split, although God tells him he's going to, quote, take the throne away from Solomon. Once it's after Solomon, then it all goes to hell in a handbag. And literally, it really does. It just blows up. But God allowed David to get through this process, become king, and he reigned for about 40 years. Humble shepherd boy, harpist to the king, psalmist, great warrior, terrific king, man after God's own heart. How in the world did this man become a murderer? How'd that happen? I'm going to lay out for you six things here that were evident in David's life as we keep reading. We're going to flip over to 2 Samuel 11 now. 2 Samuel 11. And I want you to listen to these things and listen to them with our own hearts and minds as a as a lean in here and teach you more about King David. Because here's what happened. And in in um Second Samuel eleven in verse one, we read this. Then it happened in the spring, the time when the kings go out to battle, and by the way, they usually ward in the spring. It's interesting. Why? Because the winter was so wet and cold and people didn't want to fight. That kind of interesting. Um it's one of the observations. So uh, in the springtime when kings like to go out to battle David sent Joab, one of his one of his um, commanders, and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Amnon, Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That last little phrase is so important and critical. The king led his warriors, led his troops into battle. At least went with them, got them all, you know, let his commanders take over. But the king was the man. He led them to battle, and they didn't usually stay home. The fact that David stayed behind is troubling. It could just be that he was a little bit too proud of himself or thought, oh, we've got this. God's been delivering all these people. They don't need me out there. I'll just stay back here and let them go do it. We don't know. We're not given a reason for his motive, but we do know that he was called out by the Lord for that. And this is what led to literally all hell breaking loose in his life. That one little phrase in 2 Samuel 11, 1, but David stayed at Jerusalem. So for me, I have to turn the page. We continue to read and we begin to read this story of what happened. So the position of king 
maybe some pridefulness there that he really didn't need to be out there. He had guys out there could take care of that. We don't really know that part of it. I suspect, and other commentators do as well, that and there's a, just a prideful thing there. But it, it, whether it was pride or not, he still he should have been there leading his troops into battle, and none of this would have happened. None of what? Well, let's keep going. Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, we stop right there because David's up there just killing time, looking around. Maybe he's admiring all that he's a king over. We don't know. But he looks and sees this beautiful woman bathing. So she's nude. And there's a problem. Because instead of stopping and going on or moving on or going back inside or, you know, doing the things that he should have done to turn away, that's very difficult for men to do. I mean, a, a pornography is one of the greatest sexual sins, the greatest sins of any kind that grab men. It, it does. It's, it's, a, it's been a problem throughout history. It just has been, and it is today. It may be worse now than ever simply because there's so much, uh, so many forms of pornography available. Anything you want to see, anything, no matter what, uh, is available on the Internet. And, and so... This was way before that. David simply looks across another rooftop and sees Bathsheba bathing. So what does he do? Well, the temptation is there, right? The temptation is there. And look, we know, if you've studied your Bibles, we know that temptation is not sin. Okay, Being tempted isn't sin. We are all tempted. Jesus was tempted. Remember what First John tells us? John said that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Temptation isn't the sin. Giving in to temptation, and in this case, lust, is the sin. Comes with all kinds of issues and baggage. So we go from his position as king, uh, the pridefulness or whatever reason he did not go to battle, looking around and looking at things he should not have been looking at and, and staying there. Again, to look at it, see it's one thing, to let that take root in your heart, temptation as it takes root in our heart becomes lust and it becomes sin because we act on it. We act on it. Our flesh is weak. You were that old saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. So many men, and especially men in ministry, pastors, fall on their own sword around sexual sin. I could name a half a dozen people, friends of mine, that that's happened to over the years, over many years. We're all susceptible. No one should ever say that they are not. The temptation is great. It's there. The lust is there. It's a natural thing. And we have to fight against those carnal lusts of the flesh. We're warning that throughout the New Testament, throughout Scripture. Jesus talked about it. The Apostle Paul, it's just such a, a because it can destroy us, as you will see that it did David. Instead of walking away from it, in verse 3, we read this. David sent and inquired about the woman, and he told us who she was, and her husband was Uriah. By the way, her, her husband Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was out in battle. He was out fighting battle while David was back here lusting after his wife. And now what we see is uh, he said, hey, I want that. I want her. Go get her. Bring her over here. And they did. He's the king. And so they had an affair, committed adultery. And from that point forward, the sin is there. It gets worse even, even more quickly because she tells David soon thereafter, 
by the way, I'm pregnant. Might have been a one-night stand. We don't know that, but it might have been a one-night stand. But I'm pregnant. And now we go from all this cascading stuff to fear. David is he's a king, but he's afraid because he's going to be caught. He knows there's no way to get around this. She is the wife of one of his warrior champions, Uriah. And so David's in trouble, and he knows he's in trouble. So what does he do? Instead of admitting it, coming out at that point in time and saying, man, we really messed up here. We need to make this right. He didn't do it. Here's what he did. In this fear and in panic mode because she's pregnant, I direct your attention to 2 Samuel 11, 14 and 15. So David concocts this scheme. And it says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. That's his leader, warrior leader, one of his chief commanders. And sent it to him by the hand of Uriah, the guy whose wife he had been sleeping with and was now pregnant with his child. And David had written a letter, written in the letter the following. Station Uriah on the front line of the fiercest battle, and then everybody pull back from him so that he may be struck down and killed. My friends, that is premeditated murder. Premeditated murder. This gentle shepherd boy, harpist, hero, warrior, psalmist, all these things, has allowed temptation to overcome him, his sexual senses, drive desires, just like everybody has, most people have. Uh, in this case, man, and as a man, I understand these things, and, and he, he fell, he, he gave into that. Instead of walking away or trying to escape it, he fell into that, ends up with a pregnant woman of one of his loyal, loyal soldiers. And instead of trying to fix it in some other way, he concocts this premeditated murder scheme and Uriah is murdered. If you read that story, it's even more sad because Uriah continues to be loyal to David. And David finally uh, just has to come up with this plan because he can't get rid of the guy. And his wife, you know, she's pregnant. She's going to start the show at some point. So anyway. So here we have it. This amazing young man, this amazing boy, this amazing young man, this amazing king, this man after God's own heart is a murderer, a murderer. If you flip over the next page in 2 Samuel 12, we're not going to do that for the sake of time. God sent Nathan the prophet. Nathan was one of the prophets God used to speak to David and to others during that season. And Nathan goes in there with a, with a great story. And he just tells him a story that talks about how this man had all his possessions, a rich, wealthy man. And um, there was a poor man that just had one little sheep that was a favorite of the family. And the rich guy had some visitors come and they wanted to kill a lamb or kill a sheep to be able to celebrate with it. And rather than using one of their own, because they had many, they took the lamb from that family, that single lamb that they had, and they slaughtered it and used that. And, and Nathan used that story. And David became outraged. And he said, that man deserves to die. And he needs to repay many fold. And you go through the story. And when David gets so upset about this guy, and, and he says, he ought to die for that. He deserves to die for that. Nathan just looked at him. And it's not my Bible translation, but it should be. And he said, 
you the man. I was telling people, that's the origin of that expression. You the man. You the man. That's exactly what Nathan said to him. You are that man. You're the one. You're the king. You took this woman from this one man. You had all these other wives, and David did. Part of his problem was he started taking on many wives. And here we find David, mighty King David, humbled and broken. And you say, well, why, how could God keep him alive? How could God have Jesus come through that line? How could he not be destroyed? Isn't the, the sixth commandment says thou shalt not kill. And that Hebrew word, by the way, is murder. Most modern translations say thou shalt not murder. It wasn't just accidental killing or something like that. It was intentional murder. And that's what David did. And there was a penalty for that that could have you put to death. But God overruled it. God overruled it. And make no mistake about it, there were terrible consequences because the first one was that baby died. That baby died as a result of that sin. It was on David and Bathsheba, and that first child died. That child was not Solomon. Solomon came later. He was the son of David and Bathsheba, but not that first baby. That baby died. And so from that point forward, David's family, his life, his kingdom, it became a disaster. It became a disaster. Remember, God would not allow him to build the temple. David made all the preparation, the famous Solomon's temple. David designed it. David made all the preparation. He had all the stuff together. And then Solomon, his son, was able to do it because God said, you're a man of war. You're a man of killing and death. And Solomon is not. Solomon's going to be a king of peace. And so God gave Solomon peace during his rule before Solomon messed it all up by taking 300 wives and 700 concubines and 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 really just dissing all over what God had given them in terms of the wisest, rich man that ever lived. This was the legacy of David's premeditated murder and sin. The consequences fall through, fall out, and David was allowed to see that. His favorite son, Absalom, was murdered. His daughter, Tamar, was raped by one of his other sons. His family was a mess. The ultimate and first family of dysfunctionality, that was it as a consequence of this sin of murder and what happens afterwards. Now, how do we see any, any kind of redemption for David? Where does that come from? Well, th there's a reason that God called David a man after my own heart. Because when you study the Psalms and when you get to Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is the greatest Psalm of repentance, remorse, confession, that's ever been written. The greatest words in the Bible on that, without exception. And those were written by David after this event. He became, after Nathan, after God used Nathan the prophet to convict him of his sin. And then he saw these consequences. At some point, he wrote that Psalm 51, and it's just a masterful thing. But it is a broken, humbled man weeping bitterly and owning his sin. And one of the great verses in there says this, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only. Now, he had sinned against Uriah and his family and Bathsheba and these others, but he got it. Because, friends, what we need to understand is our sin is first and foremost between us and the Lord. Between us and the Lord. But David's repentant, penitent, um, just psalm of confession and remorse that God forgave. 
that God forgave. God will forgive any sin. I've been I've sit in a prison cell discipling men incarcerated before and had guys that had actually committed murder. Because it wasn't in a maximum security prison, and I was kind of surprised at that. But you know, there are just things that push people to the point of taking another life. And we're going to see how that plays out here when we when we switch gears now, when we move from the Old Testament and David's murderous heart that went from being this gentle heart, this tender heart toward the Lord God, to this murderous heart, to this repentant heart, this confessing heart that God still referred to over in Acts chapter 2, I believe it is, when um, that story was being told about David and the legacy that God called him a man after my own heart. Only one in the Bible ever called that. And we look and see what his life looked like, and we go, wow, that's terrible. No, it isn't. It's great because it's a story of redemption, and it means that you and I, no matter what we have done, no matter what we've done, and I share this with men and women who are destitute and down and out all the time, people in prison, no matter what you've done, when you come as David did with a repentant heart, God will forgive you. He will forgive you. There's no sin he will not forgive. Now, the consequences, sometimes they are dire. We saw them in the life of David, seeing them in the lives of men and women who make foolish decisions and even to the point of murder. Sometimes it costs you your own life. Sometimes it costs you the rest of your life in prison and all the fallout from that. But the redemption story is that God forgave David. God forgave David when he was broken and repentant and contrite. Well, you know, what does that have to do with me? I mean, good night, Walter. I'm not a murderer. I certainly haven't ever killed anybody. And look at David. And yeah, maybe I've been prideful. And But how does this apply to us? I'm going to spend the next few minutes of our time looking over in the New Testament, the New Covenant, as, as some refer to it. And we're going to look at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. And in that teaching, Jesus just blew up things. He interpreted and spoke to the law in the way it was intended, and it made it matters of the heart. Not so much the physical aspect, but matters of the heart. And recall also that when we start that in Matthew 5, says, you know, that Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains. And when his disciples came to him, he sat down and opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and then we have the Beatitudes. He was teaching the disciples, those 12 disciples, or however many were there at the time. Because he sat down because rabbis sat to teach. And the others may have stood up. They may have sat down. We don't know. But there's that massive crowd. But Jesus is sitting, teaching his disciples. Now, did the others hear it? I suppose they did. Heard part of it, some of it. But the messages were to his disciples. And so in, in Matthew 5, as he's getting on into this, I want to read this passage to you. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, where Jesus takes these subjects, these laws, like the sixth commandment, murder, thou shalt not murder. And here's what he says. This is Jesus speaking. You've heard that the ancients were told, this was in the Mosaic law, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And whoever commits murder is answerable to the court, depending on whether it was intentional murder, uh, whether it's accidental murder, you know, manslaughter, things like that. God's law actually spelled out those different things with different punishments. 
So this is what Jesus is talking about. And whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. They had courts back then. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, angry with his brother, shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, raka is one of the words, he's good for nothing, like you, comes from the words moron, you moron, you knucklehead, shall be answerable to the Supreme Court, a higher court. He's going from anger to calling someone a knucklehead or a moron and goes to the next level. And whoever says, you fool, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fire of hell. I need to straighten out some of these things here before I let you go through with this, because a lot of people misquote this and take it out of context. It never, ever says, call somebody a fool, you're going to hell. That is not what it says. It says, when you call someone, we say, you fool, and you can look up the words for it. And what it's talking about, again, what he's talking about, the whole thing is about the heart. The Sermon on the Mount is about the heart, the intentions of the heart, the anger of the heart. The, the name calling of the heart that you hate someone is anger and then hate and then murder, but it's intellectual murder or it's murder of my heart that I'd kill you if I wouldn't go to jail. I hate you that much. I'm that angry with you. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's taken the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder, and he's reduced it to things that you and I deal with every day. Anger hatred of people who don't think like I do. Let's talk about politics for a little while. Let's talk about the last election. Let's talk about all these things going on today. Let's drum up some anger. Let's keep stirring it up and turn it into hatred. Let's start name calling and wishing people were dead. We'd be better off that person was dead. Then they'd be out of the way and maybe we'd get our way again. We'd elect good people or right people or all that kind of stuff. That's what he's talking about. That's the kind of anger and hatred Jesus equates with murder, with murder. And he says, when you think like that, but again, you, you are guilty enough to go to hell. Again, not that you're going to hell, but if, if someone holds on that kind of anger, and, which is sin, and that kind of hatred, which is sin, you better check your heart and make sure that you're born again in Christ. Because the follow-on to that from the disciple that Jesus loved and the closest one to him, and whose words I love to read the most in the Bible other than uh, Jesus himself, is the Apostle John. Now, I did a series last summer on the Apostle John, and we did that first, the first John the epistle, went through that. John may be called the love apostle, but no one spells it out more in black and white, hard stuff, matter of fact, in your face and this love apostle did. And in 1 John 3, 15, John wrote this. Everyone, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, John was standing there or sitting there when Jesus taught this years before, because John wrote when he was old. I've shared that with you before. John was the last eyewitness and the last survivor. God allowed him to live into his 90s. And he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, those epistles, and the book of Revelation in his 90s, old man. And then he went home to be with the Lord after that. But he writes this in 1st John, the first epistle. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Where did he get that? 
oh, let's see, Jesus just said it right here in Matthew 5, and I'm thinking John remembered the words of his master. And again, we only have part of Jesus' teaching for those three years. Remember, John also said that if I wrote down everything he said and taught and all the cool stuff, the rooms wouldn't hold all the books and stuff, all the volumes. This guy was there. He was there. He was intimate with Jesus, and he just mimicked back what his Lord and Savior said. Anyone who hates is a murderer. Then stop there. That's pretty bad, right? Well, <laughs> then he finishes the sentence. He said, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. <laughs> oh, my dear brothers and sisters, this is, um, hey. wow. This murderous heart, going from David, the actual premeditated murderer, coming into the New Testament, stepping across those, those 400 silent years into the Gospels, and right there in Matthew 5, Jesus starts to wear us out with this stuff, that if your anger, if your hatred toward your brother causes him to, it's verbal abuse is what it is, and some commentators will call that, the verbal abuse of people that you'd like to see them in hell, well, maybe you're in danger of going to hell yourself because you're really not born again and saved. John echoes that in this verse I just gave you. Everyone, everyone who hates his brother, hates someone else, is a murderer. And no murderer has eternal life in him. <sighs> wow. This is strong stuff. And it's supposed to be. Because God did not call me to tickle ears, and so we're not doing that. Last week, we talked about the, the best-known prostitute, whore, harlot in the history of mankind, Rahab, and her redemption story. And how Israel played the harlot, and how you and I play the harlot. Tonight, we've talked about David, the man after God's own heart, the humble, gentle shepherd boy playing the harp, writing the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm. Everybody loves that. He's a premeditated murderer. And yet God redeemed him through his confession in Psalm 51. Jesus picks it back up. The apostle John echoes what his Lord and Savior says. And so I close with this. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? What's the so what? The so what is what's in your heart? What is in your heart towards someone else who politically disagrees with you? who spiritually disagrees with you. If you're born again in Christ, you cannot harbor these thoughts and call yourself born again. If you do, as I have before, then we need to get on our faces and begin that confession. And I suggest you go to Psalm 51 and you get it and you read it and you confess it and you pray it and then know that God will begin your redemption story right there. I'm gonna leave you with verses that David himself wrote again and one of the very last Psalms in that book, in Psalm 139, and two of my favorite verses, he said this, search me, O God, and know my heart. This was a plea. This was a prayer. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, know my heart. You can't hide anger, bitterness, murderous thoughts in our hearts from God. We cannot. He sees it all. So we might as well do like David, 
get on our face and just lay it out there and say, Lord God, against you and you only have I sinned and I've broken this relationship and I want it back. It takes confession to do that. Christian, that's what you need to do. When I finish and say amen, I want you to do that right now. God, search me. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thought, my hurtful ways, the things that I say and do that hurt people. Forgive me for that. And my final word is to those who are listening. And and you're one of those, because I've read many, where people look at this and say, what kind of a God are you people worshiping? A God that honors murder? says don't kill, and then all these people throughout the Old Testament kill people. They're murderers. Sometimes they kill entire nations and populations. What kind of a God is that? And people go off on that all the time on social media. And they have before people who attack evangelists or people who teach the Bible like me and and want to answer, demand answers to that. Because when you read it on the service, you say, wow, that's really, it is, it's horrible, awful. There's no justification for it. David committed premeditated murder. Jesus said, you and I have done that as well. And so the person is lost. I'm saying, listen, I've got one thing going that you don't. I've confessed my sin, repented of my sins, and laid it before the Lord God, who is forgiving because of the blood of Christ. So my redemption, my salvation is through that blood poured out for me that saves me from any sin. And so can you. Yours can be as well. Your sin can be gone, can be forgiven and forgotten if you'll do like David did. And and in a broken, contrite state of mind and heart, poured out to the Lord. Lord, I've screwed this up. I am a sinner. I do need a Savior. I cannot do this myself. But until you do that, you will remain apart from him. And this fiery hell Jesus talked about, you will experience that firsthand because that's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. I pray that you will not do that tonight, that you will stop and that you will yield to the Lord God through the blood of Christ, that he would forgive your sins and receive you right now. Going to be great if you do. I pray that you will, for Christ's sake. Father God, thank you for these words, and thank you for David, and thank you for the amazing life story he has, but mostly thank you for your redemption. Oh, what a God of redemption and love you are, that you loved him through this. And despite all his mistakes, you found it in your heart to forgive his sin because he confessed it. He came to you and he begged you and pleaded. And you did because you're a God of love and mercy because of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. When we confess our sin, as John said, you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And for that, we say hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. We'll see you next time.